Alright, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me now to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 being Luke's account of the Jerusalem Council. So returning this morning to the Jerusalem Council for a, a second time, you remember that last Sunday uh, we looked particularly at the particular theological controversy that led to the Jerusalem Council. Just to, to remind you, uh, this is what happened. Men, Jewish men from Judea who had converted to Christianity, um, showed up in the church in Antioch in Syria uh, and were teaching that when the Gentiles converted to Christianity, it was necessary for them to be circumcised according to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Well, the Apostle Paul was in the church in Antioch along with Barnabas, and he vehemently uh, disagreed with these men. Uh, when they could not settle the matter there in Antioch, the question was referred back to the church in Jerusalem, where the rest of the apostles Resided, And so they took up the question in a, a council. The apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church met to consider this question. Uh, and what the Jerusalem council concluded was that these men from Judea were in fact in error. That it was not necessary, uh, not only for the Gentiles, but for the Jews to be circumcised uh, in order to be uh, saved. Because we're not saved by the works of the law but saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. So that was the decision of the Jerusalem Council, a really important decision in the history of the church, because it preserved for us uh, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, upon which uh, the good news of the gospel so very much depends. So that's what we looked at last week. So I return to this same passage then this morning, and what we're going to look at now is we're going to kind of draw back from the particular controversy um, that the Jerusalem Council met to consider and just look at how the church dealt with um, theological controversy in the first century. And as we're, we're asking, how did the apostles, how did the church in those days deal with theological controversy? We're at the same time, of course, asking, how should we? Um, deal with theological controversy when it arises in the church in our own time. Of course, that's a very uh, relevant question for us to to consider. Um, It's quite important that when theological controversy arises in the church, that we deal with it. And it's important that we deal with it, um, deal with it well. Um, There's a lot of ways in which theological controversy does prevent a threat to the church and can um, derail the church in its mission. So theological controversy has the potential to divide the church, which is to divide the the kingdom of of Christ. Well, if you're trying to destroy a kingdom, um, what better way than to divide it? Um, Theological controversy can also exhaust the church. You can spend a lot of time and and energy, which might be better spent elsewhere, um, trying to sort through all the the complicating factors of of a theological controversy. Um, Theological controversies can also embarrass the church, especially when those involved in the controversy don't conduct themselves uh, as Christians do. And sometimes, unfortunately, that happens. Uh, And perhaps worst of all, theological controversy, if it's substantial, uh, can disarm the church. 
by, um, particularly if, if, they, if the church decides wrongly in that controversy, we can come away having lost our grasp on the gospel. Uh, and then how should we do the work that we are called to do in reaching the world for Christ? So um, theological controversy is an important part of a discussion about the mission of the church. So, so how did the church in the time of the apostles deal with theological controversy? Uh, I'm pleased to say um, they did it the Presbyterian way. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Let us pray. And now, Lord God, we are gathered to, to hear and to receive your word. Uh, and hope, Lord God, to be made better uh, because of it. So we ask, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit to overcome um, all of the uh, hostility of sin uh, that is there in our, our flesh. Uh, and focus our minds, Lord God, to help us uh, both to understand and appreciate the importance of the things that you're saying today to the members of our church. Particularly, Lord God, guard us against all of the, the threats to the church and its mission uh, that are presented by uh, theological controversy. Teach us, Lord God, how to deal with it and deal with it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to, to read then this morning the same sermon text that I read last week. So this is pretty much the entire account of the Jerusalem Council. What you're especially looking for now are important details concerning how the church dealt with theological controversy in the time of the apostles. So Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 31. Listen now to the word of God. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return 
and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. And therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So how did the church in the time of the apostles deal with theological controversy? The answer is, uh, they dealt with it by means of a church council. We call it the Jerusalem Council. Just to say, the instrument that they picked up with which to deal with theological controversy in their times was the instrument of a church council. And seeing uh, the, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem um, pick up this instrument to deal with controversy, you note two things that they did not do. One, they did not do nothing. Uh, and as well, that they didn't do nothing. Because theological controversy doesn't often just go away on its own. To do nothing is to give it time to, to spread, uh, for the dissension among the brethren to grow more, more heated, but not necessarily more enlightened, uh, and so to, to deepen the divide uh, between parties within the church uh, that have developed over the controversy. So uh, not appropriate to do nothing when there is theological controversy in the church. But we also notice here that in taking up the, the instrument of the the church council to deal with theological controversy, um, that the, the church in those times uh, did not split. That is, they did not immediately split. Paul, in hearing that these fellows from Judea were, were teaching this error, uh, did not pronounce anathema upon them and bond the Jer- Jerusalem church and um, thenceforth refused fellowship between the two congregations. And it's a good thing that he, he did not. That would have been rash. Uh, wouldn't it? That would have been extreme because as it turns out, these fellows didn't actually represent 
uh, the position and the teaching of the Jerusalem church. But if Paul had gone off half-cocked, who knows uh, what it would happen between the relationship between these two churches. So, they didn't do nothing, nor did they immediately split, but rather, in order to deal with theological controversy, they took up uh, the Jerusalem council as the instrument, the proper instrument with which to deal with it. So as we look at the details of this passage to, together, um, I want to note three things about the Jerusalem Council as an instrument for dealing with theological controversy in the church. So three things about this council. First, it was a Presbyterian council. That's not a reference to our denomination, but as a reference to the fact that it was a council of, of elders, a council of, of the officers of the church. You say, well, actually it was a council of elders and apostles. Yes, but I remind you um, that the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.1, says, I am a fellow elder, and speaking to the elders of the church in his time. So it's not uh, improper to speak of this as a council of, of elders, and thus a Presbyterian council, because that's what Presbyterian means. And, and in that it was a Presbyterian council, one of the things to, to appreciate about that is it was not a congregational meeting. When there was theological controversy in the first century, um, the church did not call a congregational meeting. It didn't call all the members of the church together uh, to consider and decide together um, this theological controversy. And so I'm going to ask, well, why not? Uh, Why not a a congregational meeting to deal with theological controversy? Why rather a, a Presbyterian council or a council of the church officers? Well, again, it's, it's really important not only that we deal with theological controversy when it arises in the church, but that we deal with it, with it well. We deal with it calmly. We deal with it um, respectfully. We deal with it maturely. Right? Um, and furthermore, it's really important that we get it right, that, that we actually sort through all the difficulties of the theological question and arrive at the, the correct answer. So we have to both... Um, do it with the right spirit and in the right behavior, and then we also have to get the question itself right. And here's um, the hard truth, um, that uh, those in the church who are most qualified um, to do this are the church officers, and particularly the elders. And that's why uh, a church council was called rather than a congregational meeting. Um, And so, you know, you may detect in this uh, sort of a, an elitist uh, sort of idea that's being presented to you from the pulpit of the church today, as opposed to uh, a more egalitarian uh, idea. Uh, that is to say that, uh, that there are ways in which we're not all equal. Isn't that what you're hearing? Isn't that what I'm saying? There are some people who are more qualified to handle theological controversy in the church than others in the church. And that may, you know, that may offend our American democratic sensibilities. And I would just say that the apostolic church doesn't give one whip for your democratic uh, sensibilities. It really doesn't. Right? Um, this is important, and, and we, need to, we need to get it right. Um, you say, yeah, who's, who's more qualified to settle theological controversy in the church than me? Right? I, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the Bible. Why shouldn't I be a part of this? Why shouldn't we all be a part of this? Well, there are important ways, of course, in which as Christians and members of the church, we are 
equals, right? Equal in Christ, equal members of the body of Christ. We all partake of the Spirit. All that is true. But at the same time, there are other ways in which we're not equal. We're not all equally mature. Right? We're not all equally gifted. Some have one gift, some have another gift. Uh, and we don't all have the same uh, knowledge and, uh, and ability to sort through the, the very real difficulties of uh, a hard theological question. Uh, and so one of the things that we, that we learn here in the Jerusalem Council um, is that if we, if we want to get it right, what we need to do is pull together not everybody, but those people who are most qualified in the church to, to deal with a the theological controversy rightly, and that's the elders of the church. I mean, that's what the office is about, really. Right? So there are qualifications for church altar officers, um, elders in particular. When we look at those qualifications, what we're, what we're seeing are those uh, traits, those qualifications, that maturity, that knowledge, which would make a man most competent to deal with theological controversy when it arises. So, so that's part of what you're doing when you're nominating elders and you're electing elders and you, and you want to think about that. And so when you then elect someone to the office of elder, you are entrusting to them this office and all of its rights and responsibilities, which is part of being in these councils. And so if you entrust them with this and theological controversy arises, then trust them. To do their job. And, uh, and don't, on the other end, uh, go on the internet. Right? Before the elders have had a chance to come together and to consider the question, that you march out into there and whatever controversial discussion you can find on the internet, and you know, make all your inflammatory comments and put your half-baked opinions out there in the comments page, right? You're not helping. Right? You're just stirring things up making it harder for the elders when they actually um, enter into deliberations to consider the question. So you entrust uh, your elders with this office and this responsibility, so then trust them to deal with it when the time comes. So that's the first thing to point out. The Jerusalem Council uh, was a Presbyterian council. Secondly, Jerusalem Council as the instrument for dealing with controversy in the church was also, we see here, a deliberative council. A deliberative council. So, uh, so when the apostles and the elders came together to consider this question as a council, what did they do? Um, did, they, did they pray to God and then just wait for the answer to dawn upon them out of heaven? Um, did they all start speaking and arguing at once? No. What they did is they entered into... A, an ordered, formal debate on the question. So that's what church councils should do. And, and in that debate, right, it's not like a, it's not like a cage match where you've got these, these two sides and, and only one can emerge and they're going to try to kill each other um, and, and the victor comes out alive. That's not the spirit of the thing, right? But rather, a theological controversy has arisen in the church, and, and we as a church council of elders has got to decide the question on behalf of the church. So we want to we thoroughly consider it. You know, when you have a, an important decision to make in your life, what do you do? You consider it. You deliberate, right? You try to get as much information as you can. You get counsel from others, right, before you make an important decision. Well, that's what this process is about. 
So we want all the elders to come together, representatives of both sides of the theological question, and we want to let both sides speak. So you notice here in the Jerusalem Council, one man speaks and everybody else is quiet and listens and let him speak. And then there's silence and then another man speaks and then another man speaks, right? And we want to let everybody speak, right? Who's, who has a place in the council if they want to, to speak. And when I, as an elder, when I head into a council like this, I try not to go in having already made up my mind. I mean, obviously, when a theological controversy arises, I have my initial reaction. I think, well, that's wrong. And I can pretty easily find people that I know are going to have the same reaction as me, and we can get together, and, and we can kind of talk it out in our little echo chamber. But a weird thing happens sometimes when you actually enter into uh, a council with others on the other side, and you give them an opportunity to speak. Sometimes you realize that, that there's things you haven't actually thought of, that you got a good point, but in some ways they got a good point too. And so you want to hear that before you make a decision. It's just a way to get all of the, the best, the needed information out there in the open and the Council of the Elders so that we can thoroughly consider the question before we, as a group, make a decision on behalf of the church. So, so that's, that's what they did here. You'll notice also in the Jerusalem Council, as men are making their arguments, it's clear that what they're doing, the big question in the room is, what is the truth of God? What is God's will? So the arguments are not arguments from, uh, they're not philosophical arguments that are being made in the Jerusalem Council. They're not arguments from the social sciences. Right? What they're looking at is God's revelation. That's how the elders, that's what the, the elders are engaged in, in their deliberations in times of theological controversy. Right? They're looking at, at what God has revealed of his truth, what God has revealed of his, of his word. Um, it starts with Peter. And Peter, interesting, starts with the signs of the Spirit. The Spirit's been at work around us, and we've seen the signs of the Spirit, and that when people hear the gospel and they believe, they speak in tongues. And we've seen this happen to Jews, and we've seen the same thing happen to Gentiles. And Peter takes all that, and he, and he concludes, we're not saved by the law. We're not saved by, by circumcision or keeping the Mosaic law. We all are, Jews and Gentiles alike, believe, saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, our Savior. So, so that's basically Peter's statement at the Jerusalem Council. It then goes to, to James. right? And what does James do? Well, the question is, has Peter rightly interpreted the signs of God? And James goes back to the Old Testament, goes to Amos, and he pulls out a prophecy from Amos, and he goes, Peter's interpretation of the signs of the Spirit are indeed in line with what this, the Spirit said to the prophets in the Old Testament era. So I think, I think Peter's right. And James comes down on the same side as Peter. Sometimes in, in Presbyterian church councils, uh, debates take place uh, in which, sadly, there's very little reference to Scripture at all. So that's not right. That's not what we're there to do. The question before us is, what's the will of God? Well, how do we know the will of God? Well, we have to... Uh, referred to the scriptures, and that's where the theological controversies uh, need to be decided as we deliberate. So they come to their um, conclusion, then the Jerusalem Council does, uh, and it's, it's very decisive, right? They didn't come away from this thing going, we just have no idea. Um, but they came down with a very definite answer, and so that's the, the letter that you get um, it comes from the Jerusalem Council. The question might be asked, was this unanimous after their deliberation? Did everybody agree? And I would say maybe, maybe not. 
Um, it could be that some of the Pharisees who objected at the beginning were not persuaded uh, by the deliberation of the Jerusalem Council. And maybe those are the men that went on to be what we call the Judaizers, right? who continued to teach the same error and troubled the church for, for a while and were considered by the apostles to be false teachers. So, so you don't necessarily get unanimity at the conclusion of a, of a church council. But nonetheless, the church did decide. Um, even if there were some who were not persuaded and went on teaching this error, the church did decide, and it decided rightly in this case. So that was the work of the Jerusalem Council as a deliberative council. All right, so church council was an instrument for dealing with church controversy, Presbyterian council, council of church elders, and also a deliberative council. And then thirdly and finally, it appears that it was also an authoritative council. Not merely offering advice, but rendering an authoritative decision in the church. They produced this letter in which they, the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem council, um, have rendered their decision concerning the question that has troubled the churches. They send that letter back to Antioch. And interestingly, not just Antioch, where the controversy had arisen, but they send it to other churches, right? in the same area that likely were hearing the same things and were troubled by the same controversy. So this letter goes out from the council to, to multiple churches. Right? Um, and when the churches received this letter from the Jerusalem council, you'll notice that they, they weren't outraged. They didn't consider this a, an outrageous uh, power grab on the part of the church in Jerusalem um, or this council that came out of that church, but rather uh, the church in Antioch uh, received the decision of the Jerusalem Council with, with joy. They were grateful for the guidance of this church council um, during this time that had been so confusing to them. So the Jerusalem Council was clearly uh, a blessing to the churches in its pronouncement. Uh, and again, we, we hear in the letter itself, the, the authority with which the Jerusalem Council is speaking. It is the authority of church office, the, the authority of, of church officers and apostles, duly ordained, um, whose office was an office of rule. It's the authority of a church council, right? not just one elder or two elders, but a whole council of elders from multiple churches who have come together to decide this question as a legitimate instrument of church government. Um, and most significantly, if you look at verse 28, right, the decision that is rendered by the Jerusalem Council is said to be the decision of God. The decision of God. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So that's authority. The understanding here is that the, the Holy Spirit um, speaks to the church in times of theological controversy through church councils uh, of church elders who have come together to decide uh, those questions in dependence upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit and under the authority of Christ's apostles. So it's a Presbyterian council, it's a deliberative council, and it also is particularly in verse 28, you see an authoritative council. And that's the kind of council that you've got to have in order to deal effectively with theological controversy 
when it arises in our churches. So, of course, um, this was not the last theological controversy in the church. There have been many others since that time, and many church councils that were called to deal with them. We mentioned the Nicene Council in the 4th century. That was a really important church council, another one that got it right. Um, so very grateful for the work of uh, the, uh, the elders of the Nicene Council. And there continue to be church controversies and there continue to be councils. So when you hear about the PCA, and you hear about presbyteries, and you hear about General Assembly, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about church councils, councils of elders. And we deal with a lot of things on those councils, but one of the things that we deal with is theological controversy uh, when it arises in the church. So um, there's some of those controversies that are going on right now. Not a big surprise. Not a big surprise. It's been going on a long time. Presumably, this is going to go on to the end of the world, so we better get used to it uh, and get adept at handling it. Um, and I would just note, in anticipation, let's say, of the next theological controversy, um, two kinds of, of people who can be a problem in that moment. We're not really the people that we want to, um, to look to, to be the, the guiding lights in times of theological controversy. So um, you want to make sure you're not one of these people. So the first kind of people to watch out for in times of theological controversy are people who seem to relish theological controversy. Controversialists, we'll call them. And then I believe that I have met some Christians whose favorite part of Christianity uh, was the theological controversy. They just were drawn to it, and they were energized by it. And so they love to go back in church history and study the theological controversies uh, and spend a lot of time there. And then when a theological controversy arose in our own time, they were the, the first to want to run out eagerly, sink their teeth into it, and choose a side and then tear into the, to the opponent, right? So if you're of that spirit, you make a great lawyer. Um, but that is not really the spirit of the sort of mature Christian churchmen um, that we're looking for in times of theological controversy. There's, there's really nothing to love about this. Right? Uh, and if you love it too much, um, then as hard as it may be, you, you may need to take a seat and let others who are more mature actually, actually handle the matter. Um, the second group of people that can be a problem in moments of controversy in the church, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, are those who are squeamish about theological controversy. Uh, they just don't like arguing. And somehow they're of the opinion that this just shouldn't happen in the church. We should never disagree about anything. Or if we, if we do disagree about something, it can't be important enough to actually disagree about it. Um, and so the whole idea of a, of a council where we would be arguing um, it's just really unsettling to, to these folks. And so, um, so they would just rather not. And, uh, and we'll actually promote the idea that, uh, you know, we, we really should just let both sides be and uh, allow both positions in the church and just love each other and just get along. Well, there's times, you know, when it's trivial matters where that's appropriate. But there's other times when there's really something substantial at stake, as of the Jerusalem Council and the Nicene Council. And so you've got to deal with it. You can't be afraid um, to, to enter into those deliberations by which 
we'll be able to sort the thing out, come to an authoritative decision, and move on. Um, so you don't want to be either one of these people, either the people who relish theological controversy or the people who are squeamish about theological controversy. So what's the right mean? What's the, what's the proper middle position that's the right spirit to deal with theological controversy and deal with it well? So I would say that it is, uh, it is those people who first and foremost love the church, which is different from loving theological controversy, love the church as members of the church, as officers of the church, and furthermore, are devoted to its mission. We're devoted to its mission. And what is that? It is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And insofar as possible, we want to hold it together so that we can do that. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to embarrass ourselves before the world. We don't want to exhaust all our energies arguing forever. And we certainly don't want to lose the gospel. So we don't relish controversy, we love the church and are devoted to its mission. And so when controversy arises, we are willing to deal with it and understand that we're to deal with it biblically. And the point that I've tried to make today is to deal with it biblically is in fact to deal with it the Presbyterian way. Shall we pray?